Welcome to the podcast. This is Michael Easley in Context. I have the honor of interviewing Paul Miller today on the program. He is the executive director of See Jesus. That's one word, S-E-E, Jesus, a global discipling mission that mentors through seminaries, cohorts, and interactive Bible studies. He's the best-selling author of A Praying Life and The J-Curve, and I should probably have Paul back to talk about that book. Paul and his wife, Jill, live in the Philly area. They have six children, 15 grandchildren. Hannah Seymour, we'll get to work here. we got 15 grandchildren. Um, and you can listen to Seeing Jesus with Paul Miller on his podcast and more at seejesus.net, as always. This information is in the show notes because there's no way you can follow me reading this information. So anyway, Paul, thanks for joining us for the podcast. Thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be with you. Just to give you a little background, because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about your book, we started Stonebridge Bible Church, I think it's five years this August, and we started, I said, we're going to do something different. We're going to have a church built on exposition, discipleship, and prayer. We hand out to anyone who comes to Stonebridge on a regular basis, Ken Boa's Handbook to Prayer. And I ask them, I don't challenge them, I ask them for 90 days to do the handbook to prayer. And I don't know if you're familiar with Bo's work, but it's a... No, I'm not. It's a beautiful book. It's scripture, and he patterns it out under eight categories, and he gives you bullets. I call it paint by number prayer. The other one Cindy and I have used for decades is Valley of Vision, and I'm so glad they came out with leather copies finally because the other ones fell apart. When I was at Moody, they kindly published a collection of my prayers called Interludes. And I'll never forget, Paul, when I asked them about it, lovely, Christian, godly, wonderful vice president of publishing said, "Uh, Dr. Easley, books on prayer don't sell. (laughs) And he was right. So uh, one of my professors said, and this was, of course, back in the 80s, hold a prophecy conference and they'll fill the pews. Hold a conference <laughs> on prayer and no one will show up. So, yep, you yep. Know. so all that with my prattling introduction, talk to me a little bit about the genesis of your book, The Praying Church, Becoming a People of Hope in a Discouraging World. Golly, it goes actually back 50, more than 50 years ago to when I was 15 years old and my dad, who was a seminary professor at Westminster Seminary here in the Philadelphia area, and he had just finished his PhD. He was a pastor in a conservative Presbyterian church and thus a leader in his denomination. And he decided to visit Francis Schaeffer in Labrie. And I think there's still some memory of the church of Francis Schaeffer. And dad knew about his work and he encountered something at Labrie in Switzerland that he had never seen before. And that was that at the heart of their ministry was the prayer meeting. They were a praying community. So he knew about Schaefer's books. He knew about their outreach in their community, but it just totally blew his mind. And he had no idea that that was there. So it was his first encounter with prayer. And then I watched him. And then it was two years later where this reformed Presbyterian pastor the Presbyterians are kind of the immune system of the body of Christ. You know, we're really, you know, sometimes we attack ourselves, you know. Well, let me interrupt for a second. I have to applaud you for even talking about Ezekiel. I'm reading your book going, wait, 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 wait. A reform guy talking about Ezekiel? I like this guy even more. So anyway. (laughs) Right, right. So anyway, dad discovered the Holy Spirit. And it was just like, wow, that the Spirit is present. Mm. And 
he really was a brilliant scholar. My dad's name is Jack Miller. He's kind of well-known in our circle. So for sure. the next 20 years, when dad discovered the Holy Spirit, and not in a kind of a charismatic kind of way, he just, his faith exploded because he realized that the Spirit was given now and we live in the age of the Spirit. And it blew him out of the water. And so he had begun to pray. I've been in almost continuous prayer meetings from that time since 1970. When I wrote the little book on interludes, the preface had to do with prayer is boring. Prayer meetings are more about listening to people talk and complain and share (laughs) than pray. Prayer doesn't work. Uh, yep. I tried prayer and it, you know, God didn't come through. I bet you like me have encountered more than 50 people that in some way, shape or form said to me, Michael, when I was a little boy, my mother was sick and I prayed and prayed and prayed and she died. Literally, I bet I could come up with 50 plus people that have said something like that to me. So mm-hmm. my concern was, I know this is a spiritual discipline. I know Jesus Christ often slipped away and you talk about the luke and corpus of literature where he gets away to pray i'll never forget learning he spends the whole night in prayer before he chooses the disciples most of them so we have these patterns we have scripture but it just falls off the cliff in your book you talk about secularism and business i'm gonna jump ahead a little bit in your book and i found that striking because one of my chief complaints is the church became a business in my lifetime Oh, yeah. And the prayer meetings were marginalized, and I was fatigued, frankly. My first church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday prayer. And (laughs) I had a young family, my wife trying to make her way, and I'm trying to figure out what to do and why, and you're a one-man band in a small church. And it's just, yeah, it's just one more thing, Paul. So help. I prattled again, so help me out. So Okay, you, you raised a bunch of things. Let me begin with the very first one that you prayed and prayed and it didn't happen. And I deal a lot with that in the first book, A Praying Life, that I wrote on prayer, which is your personal life. One of the biggest things that people miss in prayer is that when you slow down in your personal life, your family, when a church begins to slow down and prayer more, and you have to slow down because it takes time to pray. Because if you try to add prayer to a busy system, you just have to clip off some of that busyness. So you actually have to do less. But one of the things that happens is the spirit becomes activated and he brings Jesus in to the community. What does that look like? Jesus comes in with his story and his story is of dying and rising. The gospel is the story of his death and resurrection for us. And that begins to be reduplicated, reenacted in the community. And so it's those dyings that I'm particularly attentive to. What is the dying? What did God do through it? And watching those stories unfold. So I would say one of the biggest misunderstandings, a praying community draws the whole community and the people in that community into the story of Jesus. You do a great job, and I'll find it here in a moment, of differentiating between the reform and the charismatic vis-a-vis. Right. Because, and now that said, we do have some reformed churches that are, you know, very clearly sure. charismatic. Yeah. In the evangelical bandwidth where most of my circle has been, there's a cessationist, and you have a little bit of the marginalized, you know, if you have the 
charismatic stuff, keep it to yourself kind of thing. <laughs> right. And you do a good job. Let me just let you answer that. So you're differentiating because some of the reform hardcore PCA guys are not going to like the language you just used about inviting the spirit in. Yeah, it's very Pauline language. Oh, by, by the way, on the charismatic gifts, I just avoid all that, okay? I just... I like I, that approach. <laughs> I just, you know, I don't have to make a judgment on them. I, I, just, I just avoid it. But what, what I like to stick to is the really clear thing. Thank you. And so what's clear in the book of Ephesians, to start there, because Paul mentions it three times, and I've called it the power train, is that there's... Yes, uh, the, let me interrupt you. Explain that powertrain, because that's a theme right. in your book. And I'm first going to do it really blandly, and then okay. go to the text. So it's four words, and you think of the powertrain in your car or a boat. You know, energy goes from the engine into the transaxle and out to the wheels, okay? So there's a transfer of power. And there, there's this Pauline powertrain. It's four words. Prayer unleashes the Spirit who brings us Jesus and out of that comes power. So it's prayer, spirit, Jesus, power. If you look at Ephesians 3.14, I bow my knees. I'm going to botch this. I'm going to bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, out of the riches of his glory or something like that. Yes. He will give you the spirit so that Christ would be formed in your heart. And I'm really butchering that. Okay, let me, let me interrupt you. That, go, yeah, let me go interrupt ahead. you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of our salvation, yes? Absolutely. Okay, so this person, and I use the phrase permanent roommate, which isn't great, but he's a permanent roommate in my yep. life now. Ephesians 5.18, do not be filled with wine, but controlled. I like to re render that controlled by the Spirit of God. Yep. So this person lives in me. So help me out here because I'm it's a little uh, I'm a little uneasy candidly with your language. So I know we're on the same page probably, but help me out because Well, it's Pauline language and, and the scholar gear I'll go a little scholarly here. So Gerhardus Voss, a Princeton scholar, yep. this is old Princeton, yep. you know, which is very conservative. His little way of summarizing is already not yet. So in the New Testament you see this pattern of already not yet. So we already have the spirit. And yet, you could say it different ways. We have been resurrected, but it kind of leaks. The work of the Spirit is permanent and final. Our souls are born again. Okay. But yet, Romans 6, we have died and risen with Christ. That's a permanent work. But our souls in Romans 7 get overwhelmed by the flesh. What do we do? Romans 8, by the Spirit, we have to be constantly killing the flesh. And notice how important prayer is in that process. So what prayer does is this ongoing unleashing, a renewing of the Spirit in our life. So that there's already this final work already. Because of the presence of our flesh, we continually need to have the Spirit renewed in our lives. And can I call this sanctification? Yeah, absolutely. So we're on the same theological chapter yep. in this regard, because yep. this positional relationship that he now indwells me permanently, which is the new covenant after all, yep. but yet I need to grow. And I'm so appreciate your nod to Romans 7, because this has been an axe I've ground for 30 plus years. It's not about pre-conversion. It's about six, seven, and eight. It's, you know, who will deliver me? Yeah. Eight, one. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ yeah. Jesus. So that's the hallmark to me of Pauline theology is that, you know, I'm dead to sin. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Praise yes. God, someone's done it for me. So yeah. 
Let's talk back. Right, you know, let me just interrupt you there, Mike. My, my, let me just continue that thought. So prayer, though, doesn't function. It's not one more activity of the Christian life. Thank you. That's why you don't see prayer listed in the gifts. And there are a lot. Mm. There are like seven different gift lists. My wife and I pray together every morning. If you were to hear our prayers, you would say, Paul, she prays better than you. And I would say, yes. <laughs> I mean, I describe the way she prays. It's like we're coming into the airport. I laughed. The no, plane. Let me interrupt you. I laughed reading your first chapter about your your wife, and then of course the precious with your daughter, and then your prayer. I thought, yep, a lot of couples would identify, but you handled yeah. that so beautifully. Because people have so lost the idea of prayer. I begin the book with my three times of praying: yeah. praying with Jill, praying with Kim, and she's disabled on her speech computer, and then. Then our prayer meeting and staff, where we're trained to pray together, each one is so different. It's like when she's praying, she's coming in to land the plane, <laughs> and, and I got to get to work. And we've been praying already for 20 minutes. And just as I think the wheels are coming down, she goes around for it. And she sorry. thinks of something else. And they're really beautiful prayers. Yeah. And she comes in again, and then, and then she's going to land the plane. And I'm getting itchy. I'm here. I've written two books on prayer, and I want to get to work. Let me tell I mean, you how, how this works, honey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so why is there no gift of praying? Because obviously there are these Annas in the temple, like my wife, that pray really uh, well. The answer is there's no gift of breathing. I've never heard anyone make that observation. That is a $25 quote. There's no gift of prayer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's just, That's a great observation. And the church has <sighs> stopped breathing. These last 50 years. You've been around church. Your dad's been around church. I've been around church 40 years now. Prayer meetings are insufferable, Paul. I'm just I'm just laying it bare. They're insufferable. <laughs> They're the organ recital. They're the meaningless repetition. They're put a gun to my head. I can go study the Bible. I mean, I'm supposed to be a pastor, and I'm even like these people. Help me. In, in the book, I have a chapter. I think I changed the title, the, the but it was, it's all on Aunt Edna's hip, because I, yeah. I say in there that Aunt Edna's hip has killed more prayer meetings exactly. for, than, than, than Samson's, Samson's jawbone of the ass killed Philistines. I mean... Because it, hey, well, how, how does it kill it? It's arthritic. It never gets better. <laughs> she brings it up every week. And the thing is, it's not isolated from, I'm sorry, uh, un, you know, Uncle Harry's bad back, oh, and gee. which makes Gloria think of this and door, you know what I mean? Oh, it's, yeah, so, yeah. So <laughs> I, I had this rule. I, Cindy and I used to do these marriage mentor groups that were a big commitment, two years in our home every Sunday night for at least two hours. And and anyway, I had a rule on prayer. You couldn't pray for anybody else. <laughs> I want you to pray about your own life, your own character, your own temptations, your own struggles, your marriage, obviously, because it was a marriage mentor group, pulling teeth. Because one, I'd much rather pray for Aunt Harriet's hip or whatever. And that's what the organ recital. Now, forgive me, Jesus. I mean, we're supposed to pray for these things. But my point is, a prayer meeting for a local assembly, which you do a tremendous job in your text talking about, should be about that body, individuals, reaching people for Christ, growing in faith. And it's a, it's precarious to measure these things. And I do want to ask you about measuring because you do talk about answered prayers in some pretty interesting ways. But, Paul, that's not how we measure prayer, is it? Well, I mean, there's so many sides 
to what you're saying. There is a real skill to leading a prayer meeting so you don't get stuck. I call it the prayer pyramid. So you have vision at the top. Those are kind of your big prayers. And then you have strategy. And then the bottom is tactical, kind of your to-do list. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, so what do we do today? And you need to be praying at all three levels. So part of my work as a prayer leader is I call that top of the pyramid, pray big. And that's where praying scripture really helps me to get yes, out of that. Hundred percent. You know, so I I work on that whole idea of praying big, and, and it's just praying big in the heart of God, but not praying out of the context in which you are. You know, so even I do not when Aunt Edna's asking about, I pray for her hip. You know, I teach people to pray for her hip. It hurts. And then we pray for her whole life, you know, and then we try to bring Aunt Edna out of that and to think, bring Aunt Edna global. Because tremendous amount of pastoring happens in really well done, committed prayer meetings where people have faith. It just takes time and work to get there. Well, and I appreciate your emphasis on on scripture, which is why I've started it out showing this handbook to prayer because Boa did an extraordinarily brilliant organization. It's not just pell-mell scripture. He spent time putting this together. And whether you wanted to use the ACTS or your pyramid, he has these 10 morning affirmations. I was going to just toss them your way because so many of them parallel your book. He says, adoration, confession, renewal, petition, intercession, affirmation, thanksgiving, and closing prayer. And he models it off the Lord's prayer. And then he, these 10 affirmations, I challenge some of my closest friends. You talk about band of brothers to pray these 10 affirmations every day. And I said, you know, if we do this two weeks, our life's going to change because the one I get stuck on is purpose for my life. Yeah. I know the platitudes. I know seek ye first the kingdom of God. I know make disciples of all ethnos. I know about Colossians. I mean, I know these things. But, you know, Paul, you're probably younger than me. As I get older, it's tough. I get ornery, Paul. And when I pray, it's like, <laughs> Lord, I've been doing this for 40 years. Now, now it's all about me, right? Yeah. You know, pretty much every prayer meeting I'm in, I slowly mentor them on how to pray together. And the biggest thing, the difference between corporate prayer and individual prayer is that corporate prayer, praying together, requires love. So people have put love and prayer in two separate buckets. If you're with good friends out for dinner, you don't need to be taught how to have a conversation. You're attentive to one another. And so your conversation builds off one another. See, within pietism, which has been sort of the beating heart of Christianity for a couple hundred years, there's many, many good things in pietism, but it tends to be me and my life and my prayer life how I'm, and my spiritual walk. But what if the spirit really maybe not, is not all that interested in my spiritual walk. (laughs) It wants me just to love people. (laughs) You know, you just eviscerated 20 years of my life. Keep going. (laughs) You know, and, and so, and so you're teaching people how to love. And here's the tricky thing is I have to love them while I'm teaching them how to love. I say, you know, try to be attentive to one another. In our praying church seminar, I show a video of one of our prayer meetings. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing unique, but only three people pray in it. It's a Zoom call. But people say, oh, wait, they're paying attention to one another. They're building on one another's prayers. It's not isolated. 
That's brilliant. Okay, I want I want to change gears a little bit. You talk about, and again, I want to be careful for our friends. Measuring church health and growth is a precarious, and sure. it can be numbering the kingdom if we're not careful. And uh, right. David had a little bit of trouble with that. Yet the ABCs is I used to teach pastors this ABCs and MVP adult attendance building cash. You need a healthy attendance, meaning whatever your community is, what you're praying about, what you're, you know, I mean, you need people to come and be part of a fellowship. You need a place to do ministry out of, not just to bring them, and you need cash. And -hmm. I would say these are very fundamental. They're not the only measure, but it's a way to say, are we doing something that is good stewardship? Then we have the MVP, money, vision, power. Who controls the money? Who controls the vision? who controls the power. And I used to put this up on a white marker board and said, this is how we think whether we organize it or not. Now, we haven't even talked about spiritual growth. We haven't even talked about maturity. We haven't even talked about discipleship or you know evangelism. So I appreciate you're taking this from, if I'm energized by the spirit to pray, we'll see a healthy church. Help us there. I have a circle chart where I describe yes. where I describe some of those elements I just sort of picked them randomly, the different things that you need within a church. And I said, every one of them is important. We can over-spiritualize, you need money. And so I'm glad that you just said you need cash if you're going to pay your pastor. And there's nothing wrong about that, you know. But they should not sit at the center of the church. What should be at the center of the church is the spirit of Jesus. And the principal way, if you use Ephesians and the book of Acts together as a model, the principal way you access the spirit of Jesus is through what we described as the powertrain, is through prayer. You know, the church began with a 10-day prayer meeting. Jesus said, I want you to go and wait for me in 10 days. I'm going to be back. You know, we know from John Disciples had gotten an early Pentecost when he breathed on them. So there's been a mini infilling of the Spirit. When Jesus said, go to wait, they knew exactly what to do. They'd been with him for, who knows, three to ten years, years. You know, at least three years. And certainly officially and unofficially, you know, right. they knew what to do. They prayed because now they have the Spirit of Jesus in them. And so they had a ten-day prayer meeting. And you see that pattern all through Acts of the powertrain of prayer leading to this pouring out of the Spirit and radical things happening that are outside the box. Let me get your help and encouragement for pastors in particular, because anytime a pastor goes to a seminar or conference, picks up the newest book, you use the term bricks on a camel. Right. I would use the joke, you know, so-and-so has a wonderful plan for my life. You know, and on a given right. uh, calendar year, you need to be more pro-life. You need to be more pro-adoption. You need to be more right, homeschooling. Right. You need to be more the amount of bricks that unrealistic expectations <laughs> yeah. from well-meaning people. They yeah, love yeah, yeah. the Lord, and they've got their yeah. parachurch universe. And I, I don't want to ever, and you talk about the saints in a precious way. I don't want to disparage how God's wired people to be FCA, Young Life, whatever, you know, whatever thing you want to talk sure. about. At the same time, he didn't say, I'll build Young Life or I'll build FCA or I'll build, you know, he said, I'll build my church. And mm-hmm. that's why I chose to be a churchman as opposed to other things in life. And 
be that as it may, the pastor is going to read this book and he is going to go, oh, I'm failing. I'm not, you know, I know I need to do the prayer thing. I know Paul's right. And maybe he's going to come to one of your See Jesus conferences and then he's going to go back and his elders and deacons are going to go, mm, well, we got to do the, you know, you know how this goes. So help out this poor guy who might pick up your book and say, yeah, Paul's right. Yeah, I'm terrible at prayer. Yeah, I don't do prayer meetings. Give him some encouragement. Well, first of all, hopefully when they read the book, they'll see that they need to put down the backpack, you know, and. Oh, um, I love that line. What was it? Um, what was it? You're not the third person. You know, you're not the third person of the Trinity. I, I invite pastors to do a virtual resignation from being the Holy Spirit it. in their church. And, and so really my goal is for them to do less and have the Spirit do more. So like in my little work, our little work, we have about 40 staff now, and we tithe our time to prayer. So we have a Monday prayer meeting for 60 minutes in the morning, Wednesday prayer meeting for 60 minutes, and then there's a Thursday prayer meeting, same thing, that just for ministry staff. And then on Friday, all ministry staff have to take two hours just quiet before the Lord. So that's about four and a half to five hours. That's pretty much about our average staff time in prayer. And But I work I work about a 45-hour week. And now again, I'm, a, I'm in a different situation than a pastor, but I have our own unique pressures. But I'm doing less because I know how powerless I am. I know how lethal my leadership gifts are without the, when I'm not in step with the Spirit. I know how pride quickly comes into organizations. I scare myself. You know, our, the name of our organization is See Jesus. And it's so easy for us to be able to think that to see, see Jesus, you know what I mean? Which is idolatry, as yeah. opposed to see Jesus. You know, we are a spiritual work. Every church is a spiritual work. That means capital S spirit. So I, it's just how you do life. Again, your tradition vis-a-vis -vis evangelicalism, and I don't want to parse this too finely, but I, I do think we have our own idiosyncratic hangups when we talk about the spiritual work. And we can over-spiritualize it with feelings. We can under-spiritualize it with being so and I do, literary, you know, the text. Um, so help me out there a little bit, because I know the Spirit is the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead. I know there's no salvation apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. I know he intercedes. I know all these things intellectually, Paul, but for the fear of getting experiential wrong or pedantically so rigid, help me out. If the weakness, and I'm way overgeneralizing, but in general, there's a weakness in the charismatic movement of running your feelings or your intuition into the, the spirit. And you can see that within pietism. It's actually bigger than the charismatic movement uh, where the Lord <laughs> led me to this. And you're like, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? And it really is a bad idea, you know? But so there's that one danger well, you have at times in the charismatic movement, you can have a disconnection between the word and the authority of the word and the authority and the wisdom of the church with the promptings of the spirit.
In my Reformed community, it's the opposite problem where we have ignored the spirit and it actually creates its own version of the celebrity culture because then you have the celebrity preacher. I mean, here's just one little thing, little, little factoid from Acts. Every time in Acts there is a sermon, there is a preacher. Every time there is a prayer meeting in Acts, you have the entire community. You, you know, that job description in Acts 6, where the apostles say, we need to be in the ministry of the word and prayer. We have this graphic we use in the Praying Church Seminar of this really muscly guy on half his body, and the other half, he looks like me. You know, it's just kind of scrawny. And that's really the, the typical pastor, evangelical pastor, is they, and, and I've asked pastors, I did this 45 minutes into a praying church seminar once with about 60 pastors, all reformed, all love the word. You know, we looked at Acts 6. And I said, how much training do you have in ministry of the word? And, you know, they said hundreds and hundreds of hours. I said, how much training do you have in the ministry of the prayer? And a guy from the back said, about 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, we were 45 minutes into, I mean, it's like nothing on that. You know, well, what I appreciated was your confidential questionnaire about pastors and you know how good are we at praying up in front, and they all felt yeah. pretty good about that, you know. And and I thought, boy, we're performance driven, you know. And this goes back to that business thing again, which I think is hijacked oh. uh, in oh. my tradition. The evangelical oh. church has been hijacked by. But when I was doing my doctoral work, we were reading Prentice Hall, Josie Bass. Kuzis and Posner, lead, I mean, great books on leadership, but it was so, you know, it's a ministry, not a business. And and this has infiltrated so many of these uh, churches. I don't want to be disparaging. Here, here's but, a quick example that I mentioned in the book. And again, those leadership books, yeah. they're not bad. They can be helpful, but they sit at the center. And they should not be at the center where the spirit of Jesus is. And the only way you can tell if a community has the spirit of Jesus at the center, are they slowing down and praying as a community? Do they make their decisions <sighs> yeah. over out of prayer or out of just, if, you're, if, if prayer is peripheral, there's no room for magic. There's no room. I mean, I've asked pastors with these highly orchestrated Sunday morning, you know, if the Holy Spirit were to show up, where would you fit him yeah. in the program? The nursery people want <laughs> us out at 10 o'clock and I don't care what the I was leading doing, a prayer yeah. meeting recently. And I said, you know, we're not going to be like those Asbury people that go on and on. We're going to time this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have two final questions because when you shared about Kim and when you shared about, well, three actually, losing a daughter, you shared about Kim who's got some disabilities and this Augustinian phrase that you use to describe your mom's assessment of your dad. So if you can give us a little bit of a, you know, okay, this is, this is maybe intimate information, right, but you, you pick them, do them one at a time. So it's Which not one? something... Uh what? Start with Kim. Start and, with and Kim. just anything in particular about Kim or, or that story I tell? Well, I just thought it was precious because I'm reading it and I'm pulled in and trying to fight back tears going, oh, this guy is an amazing dad to be dealing with a girl who's at times difficult and your perspective changed and I, you need, I go pray with her. Well, I'll try to tell the story briefly, but 
Kim has autism. And so this was in 2007. Oh, golly, she would have been about 25 or something like that. And she would get up in early morning hours, like four o'clock, and pace upstairs. And this would make noise. It didn't bother me. Jill would yell at her to get back in bed. And then Jill and I would get up early in the morning, like 5.30 or something, to have devotions. Jill had her devotions on the first floor. I was on the second floor, and Kim was on the third floor. And Jill would yell at me so I could yell at Kim, get back in bed, like a tag team. (laughs) I'd sort of get out of my guy world, and and I'd yell at Kim so Jill wouldn't yell at me. And sometimes all of that's happening at once. Jill yelling, I'm yelling, and Kim's pacing. I mean, not your really too spiritual family. But anyway, um, <laughs> I decided to go to up one day and just pray <laughs> with her. And um, I, when I went up there, I just prayed. My, my prayers are very simple and plain. They still are. I just asked God would quiet her spirit. I mean, the prayer took all of 15 seconds. And by the end of that 15 seconds, the only way I can say it was I knew something about Kim that I had not known before. And that was that I had underestimated the spirit's ability to work in Kim. I heard no voice. I had no feelings. I just, that's the only way I could describe it. I call these prompts of the spirit. It makes some of my reformed brothers nervous, but Luther, Calvin, all the saints talk about these and you don't elevate them above the word and they never happen the same way. And you can always tell the marks of them is that they are convicting and there's something like I was convicted by that, you know, and I, it led to a kaleidoscope of things happening that were just remarkable. And that's why you have to follow these stories. Like the next thing that was in December of 07 In March, her pacing stopped and it stopped because we moved because there was a, the trucks, the diesel trucks were waking her up and we didn't know that till we moved to a quieter neighborhood. And it was, it was just so much the work of the spirit. And I began to have devotions with Kim and I finally sat down and prayed with her. And that year I stopped all, and I, I, I have a writing and discipling ministry a lot of it I began by teaching in a Sunday school class. And I went to our pastor and said, I'm going to stop teaching. I shut down the physical font of my ministry because of this prompt of the spirit. God was taking me low. And I said, I want to teach Kim and her friends. And so we went, we found a room in the basement next to the furnace. And I started teaching. There's so many patterns of Jesus in that. Like he led me, you see the Jacob, like he led me into a little bit of a death. I stopped my ministry of the big crowds, how hidden it was, like just like Jesus and how surprising his work was. A couple years later, Jill said, Paul, I want to teach this. I think I can write curriculum for Kim. And out of that came Bethesda ministry. Jill has now written about eight curriculums for Bible studies, hardly anybody is actually discipling kids with intellectual disabilities. And now hundreds of churches across the world are using this this study. And it all started with slowing down and doing the hidden ministry. Right under your roof. When I saw Johnny Erickson Tata had endorsed your book, I said, say no more, Johnny's a dear friend. 
and share a little bit. And just we'll probably have to end on this one because I want to honor your time. But you use the phrase uh, attributed to Augustine or Augustine about disordered love, which parallels into your mom calling out idolatry or soft idolatry. So share a little bit about that, and it'll encourage folks to pick up the text because it's a precious and powerful story. Yeah, my my dad and I, and, and I was working with dad too in our ministry that our church in Philadelphia had in Uganda and in Philadelphia, and God was really blessing it. I mean, this is a, a prayer-saturated church, and there was just really neat things going on. This was 1983. This is, golly, 40 years ago. And... So there was much genuine work of the spirit, but my dad's loves had become disordered, which often happens in ministry. It's so exciting. And mom was feeling neglected and she wrote a letter to dad. She didn't use Augustine phrase, disordered loves, but I love his phrase. I like to call it soft idolatry. It's not, you're not like worshiping Baal, but you're over loving your own work And the only way you can tell is in close relationships because you begin to, when you create a ministry idolatry, people, everything you do has to be contribute to that. So you begin to use people. People feel used. And mom was feeling used and neglected by dad. And she wrote him about it and he kind of ignored her. And she's praying for him. When the spirit comes, he brings fire. That's the simplest way to say it. Jesus gets a dove. The rest of us get fire. The reason he gets a dove <laughs> is God has to create a landing zone for the Jesus to come in. He's got to clear the deck. There's too much brush in there. You know, it's true. I mean, there's two references to Jesus getting a dove. And mom's prayers for dad brought fire. He had a heart attack about three months later. And she actually only connected the dots for me on some of this in, in the last two or three years. My dad has been with the Lord for about 25 years. And he he had a we had a break with the church we were working with in Uganda. Uh, dad had a heart attack. And out of that, dad started a prayer meeting. I'm in the grandchild prayer meeting of that prayer meeting that so many things came out of that prayer meeting. It's just incredible. So you can see the pattern of dying, the disordered loves of dad led to mom's praying the spirit into Jesus' life. God brought fire. God worked where mom couldn't. That's why I pray. Paul Miller, his newest book, A Praying Church. And I'm going to buy a copy of this and give it to all our newly minted elders here at Stonebridge and ask them to read through it. But it's an area that I have tenaciously and unsuccessfully fought for. (laughs) As as my friend at Moody said, books on prayer don't sell. So I'm going to hope that your book on prayer sells very well in the sense that it changes people's lives. Thanks for your heart for this. Thanks for your ministry. Thanks for taking time to, to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.